The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febctoday.org. I, I hope that one of the things I've accomplished with the book is to, to convey the degree to which uh, their religious belief and faith was central to their, to their character and to how they conducted their lives. Look back in history at the life of an early American as David McCullough joins us to talk about John Adams. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. The interview we're going to hear actually took place back in 2001, several years before this program began. However, during my years at Moody Radio in Chicago, I had the privilege on a couple of occasions to interview Mr. McCullough in the Moody Studios. So with gratitude to Moody Radio for providing the recording, we'll hear part one of our interview, which took place upon the publication of McCullough's biography of John Adams. And next week at this time, you'll hear part two of this conversation. Special thanks also to the Far East Broadcasting Company for making this program possible. More about FEBC at firstpersoninterview.com. You probably recognize David McCullough's voice immediately. He is a master of American narrative history and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. As our conversation began, I told him that after reading John Adams and reaching the chapter about his death, I felt as though I had lost a friend. Well, I I felt very strongly I'd lost a friend. Uh, I'd lost uh, company that I'd been able to keep for uh, six, six years and then some. Privileged company. I, 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 I felt I felt I've, I've been very lucky in my subjects over the years: the Brooklyn Bridge, the Panama Canal, Harry Truman. But I have never had a better subject than this, or such material to work with. You must have felt that you yourself were almost a contemporary at times as you delved into them. Well, I did. I I had never worked in the 18th century. I'd never set foot in that country, <laughs> and uh, that was a big part of the pull because, like. We, as we feel when we're in a country we've never stepped into before. Everything is very vivid and very uh, um, interesting. And uh, sometimes I would be at the end, end of the day, I'd be tired not so much from, the, from work but, but, but from looking around <laughs> <laughs> in the 18th century. Hmm. And fortunately, I, I love to go where things happened. I, I like to go to the, see the place where events hmm. occurred. And uh, the way a military historian wants to walk over the battlefield and feel the ground under mm-hmm. the feet, I like to go and uh, see the houses, the rooms, the streets, the, uh, the the towns that they lived in. I think we're shaped by spaces more than we realized. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why great cathedrals are the way they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, um, the house that Adams was born in, the house that he, he and Abigail moved into after they were married. That's all still there for all us to enjoy. All still there. Uh, the house that they retired to after they came back from from Europe. Well, we're not really retired, because, but which was the summer White House for all the years that Adams was president. And all the houses that they lived in in Europe, in Paris, Amsterdam, and London, are all still there. Hmm. And uh, so my wife and I 
wanted to walk the walk and uh, and in all seasons and at night as well as day. I mean, mm-hmm. Adams would go out and walk the streets of Amsterdam. I wanted to walk the streets of Amsterdam. What a remarkable experience. You, you must have felt like you really literally were projected into those. Well, I was, and I'd never been in Amsterdam before. And, okay. of course, the 18th century is all around you there. Yes, yes. The, I would imagine you walk down some of those narrow streets oh, and they feel the same, yes. you know, the canals. And, and to go to the Church of the Pilgrims, oh. Uh, to, oh, go, yes. to, to go to the where the... Where the pilgrims live, that little section in Leiden, that's not mm-hmm. Amsterdam, right. uh, is a terribly moving experience. When you realize how small their quarters were, tiny little houses on little back streets, they, they had no money. They were, they were the immigrants. They were the poor mm-hmm. immigrants in, uh, in Holland. Uh, they lived there for 12 years. Many people think that they left England, stopped off briefly in Holland, and then came mm-hmm. on to... Uh, to Plymouth, but they didn't. They they were there for twelve years. Those were his ancestors. Of course, he lived there uh, during the Revolutionary War. Yes, we'll get into that. We're getting getting ahead of ourselves a bit in the story here. We learned so much in your book about John Adams and his career and his love for this country, his revolutionary spirit. Uh, let's give a quick sketch of his life. We know he was second president, kind of the forgotten president between Washington and Jefferson. But give us a sketch of his life, just briefly. Well, he was he was the second president, and before that, the first vice president under Washington. He was the only president in our history who ever had the daunting task of succeeding George Washington. <laughs> uh, he was the first president to live in the White House. He and Abigail were the first husband and wife to live in the White House. Although briefly. Very briefly. He... Uh, his great uh, contribution, uh, and really if he'd done nothing else, he would be a man of infinite importance to our story as a nation, was that he drove – he was the one who drove the Declaration of Independence through the Continental Congress in Philadelphia uh, in that fateful summer of 1776. He's the one that made it happen when it happened. Hmm. And uh, Jefferson called him the Colossus of Independence. Um, he was really the leader. And um, – if, if Jefferson was the the pen of the of the revolution, he was the voice. Mm. Uh, he gave the greatest speech of his life, and one of the greatest speeches in American history, certainly in in the, how it turned the tide. Uh, before the Congress, behind closed doors, in secret, every nothing was recorded, so we don't know exactly what he said. But it uh, it was this. As Jefferson said he moved us from our seats and made them do what they had to do, which they might well not have not done. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then went on to serve the country as a diplomat in France and in the Netherlands. And then after – and when the war ended, he was one of our, the three Americans to represent the United States, the new United States. At difficult Paris, assignment. Very difficult assignment. Paris Peace Treaty, which in many ways is the most advantageous treaty we ever signed. It not only established the independence of the new United States of America, but also – uh, defined our westernmost border at, at the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It, it in effect doubled the size of the of the country mm. uh, in one uh, one stroke of several pins. And um, uh, after that, he then went to be our first uh, ambassador or minister to the court of St James's in London, and was the American who stood before her George the Third to yeah. declare that he's the one I'm here to represent the United States of America. That, that was a moving moment. It to read was about that. I, I, to me. It's one of the great moments in American history. And both both men, both King George the Third and John Adams, were so moved themselves they could barely speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, after his service of three years in London as our American minister, he came home to become the second, uh, to become the first. Uh, 
uh, vice president in the first administration under Washington, served two terms. Of course, things were far different in terms of how they were chosen. And the, yes. the, 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 the politics were just beginning to enter into that whole process. Yes, uh, candidates for high office did not campaign. They retired to their uh, homes and uh, tried to act uh, as though they were indifferent to the outcome. <laughs> and uh, Adams certainly lived by that uh, style of behavior and, and, and approved of it. Mm-hmm. He, he thought it was unseemly to go out and court pop- popularity. He mm-hmm. thought that was demeaning. And it was demeaning to the voter, not just to uh, the individual. Mm-hmm. That one ought to vote for the best man, and one ought to vote for the and ought to judge the best man by what had he done for the country up until then. And it's, one, one would and wish it's not, for a little of that today, almost. Yes, it? one indeed, and it is not insignificant that the second man in those days, the winner in the election mm-hmm. became president. Right, the runner-up became vice president. Mm-hmm. That's how. Thomas Jefferson became his vice president, although they yes. had wide disagreements with each yes. other. Yes, and John Adams was the first and only president ever to run against his own vice president <laughs> because they they found themselves on two different sides as the as the two party system emerged, and uh, neither Washington nor Adams uh, approved of the party system. They really looked upon the party system as as perhaps uh, the end of of the American experiment. They thought it was poisonous. Mm. Adams worried that uh, people, if they took up parties, would begin to think about the welfare and the future of the party more than the welfare and the future of the nation. In that and so many other ways, he was almost prophetic, wasn't he? Mm. Uh, Adams was at many attributes, many good and remarkable qualities, and one of them was his capacity to be prophetic. He he loved to um, quote the fables of La Fontaine and a particular line which was, in all things one must consider the end. How is it going to come out? He um, In Congress, he predicted, he said, and he was the only one, the Revolutionary War, it was not going to be over in a, in a easily in a year or two. It was going to be a long, drawn out, very costly bloody affair. And I it think would, we have forgotten how probably, long it really lasted. Yeah, he said it would last 10 years. He was wrong. It lasted eight years. Wow. But he's the only one that had any idea of how long it was going to last. He is also, um, I think, deserves tremendous credit for seeing uh, what the outcome of the French Revolution would be. He was mm-hmm. uh, the only American who spoke out and said this is, is commendable and understandable in many ways, but it is going to lead to a bloodbath, and the bloodbath will give rise to a dictator, which, of Who course, is exactly, exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. He also saw that we had to have a navy. We could not yes. get by without a navy. He really was the father of the navy. Yes, he was. Yes. I don't know whether the father, whether the navy wants a father, but <laughs> but uh, his, his statue should loom large uh, at Annapolis. Mm. And and I think that his his perception of what, what the country would become was acute. I think he had better long-range political sense, for example, than than uh, Jefferson. This 2001 interview with David McCullough about John Adams will continue coming up next on First Person. When I first heard the good news on the FBC's station, I tried praying to Jesus for the first time. Life is difficult, but Christ is helping me see things differently. Just one of millions of grateful people who listens to the Far East Broadcasting Company in her own language. You can sign up for a free online daily devotional from FEBC 
telling more listeners' stories, while at the same time it encourages you from God's Word. Receive this online devotional without obligation when you visit FirstPersonInterview.com. Our guest is David McCullough. Our conversation centers on the second president, John Adams. He felt that the um, most important act that he had done in public life, and certainly the most important act of his presidency, and subsequent historians and biographers would all, I think, agree, that he kept us out of war with France. Uh, We were at war at sea. It was an undeclared war, uh, but it was a real war at sea with France. And a very little understood matter today. It's almost lost, isn't it? virtually forgotten. And there were all kinds of people and lots of political pressure to expand the war to an all-out war with France, which which would have meant going to war with Napoleon. And uh, that not only would have been a, a, great, a great blunder, we could hardly afford uh, to carry on as a peacetime nation, let alone fight Napoleon. And had, and had it happened, I think it's reasonable to say, there would have been no Louisiana Purchase. Hmm. So uh, the consequences of not wow. going to war with France were very large indeed. He suffered politically from yes, that because uh, his own party, the Federalists, he was never more than a nominal Federalist, but his own party turned against him and, and principally his own party's chief political leader, Alexander Hamilton, turned against him. And in the last weeks of the election, published the most scathing smear against Adams of all the smears, and there have been many that have been published, saying that the man was unfit to be president, he was he was uh, incompetent, he was uh, un- inconsistent, he was verging on madness, etc. Why Hamilton did that is still a matter that no one can explain. It suggested that if that maybe Hamilton was unbalanced because, uh, and there were so many factors. For example. In the South, they counted three-fifths of all the slaves as part of the population in order to arrive at the figure that would give them their electoral vote. Those were the times. If if that had not been the case, if it had been an even playing field, let's say, Adams would have won. Hmm. And even as it was, a difference of 250 votes— Won a second term, you mean? Yes, won a second term. Even a, a difference of 250 votes in New York City alone, wow. alone would have given Adams the election. <laughs> the idea that uh, Jefferson was swept in by popular demand is, huh. is quite untrue. Uh, you can't tell the story of John Adams without talking about Abigail, his wonderful wife. Uh, you call it a great love story. Well, it is. It's one of the great love stories in American history, maybe the greatest, and it's all true. And it's all documented. It's all in the letters that they wrote to each other over years and years of their lives. They were separated because of his service to the country for uh, a little over 10 years. And it was it was punishing for them. It was it was very painful uh, because they were devoted to each other. But we are the beneficiaries because we have the letters. Mm-hmm. Over a thousand letters between John and Abigail Adams. Wow. And neither one was capable of writing a dull letter or a short one. <laughs> I have uh, had the thrill, really, the adventure, maybe I'd be better to say, of, of exploring their time, of getting inside the, the life of that time through their eyes and a pen. And she could hold her own with any of the, mo- of the outstanding thinkers of mm-hmm. the day. Mm-hmm. She was very bright, very well read. She was um, profoundly religious profoundly patriotic, uh, a strong and immensely admirable woman. Not always an easy woman to get along with, Mm -hmm. but she was – he said before they were married that what I need is ballast. And 
she certainly was his ballast, and she was his most trusted advisor. He did not, however, always take her advice. And the most uh, important example of that is that she was full ready to go with war, to war with France. I think she would have joined up and marched off herself if she could. She would have served under Hamilton. Huh? Yeah, well, anybody. I mean, she was so <laughs> she didn't trust Hamilton. She but, was so affronted, so yeah. angry uh, by the, at the treatment of the French uh, to our ships, to our sailors, mm-hmm. to our uh, to our dignity as a nation. Her sense of right and wrong. Her feeling, for example, that all the troubles that they were. They were experiencing during the war uh, pestilence sweeping through the t- towns of New England, uh, epidemic dysentery, smallpox. Uh, the uh, war that was at her doorstep when she writes to uh, her husband who's in Philadelphia, I wonder if this, if this, if this is not punishment, uh, our punishment for the sin of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tells him at one point when he's uh, sort of down uh, and, and uncertain – I would not have you, nor would you wish to be a mere spectator. We have too many high-sounding words and too few actions to correspond with them. Mm. What a banner to march under oh, that. Boy, I, yeah. I guess so. I, I was deeply impressed by the letters, which you quote liberally in your book, too, and thank you for giving us that record of what is there. I was deeply impressed with her religious conviction, her faith, which seemed very real. It wasn't just a Puritan kind of show. It, it was very deeply felt. Oh, that. absolutely. And um, there's several things about that. I, I hope that one of the things I've accomplished with the book that is different from some of what has been written about them before is is to, to convey the degree to which uh, their religious belief and faith was central to their, to their character mm-hmm. and to how they conducted their lives. You know, the, the people of the 18th century were very certain that they had invented the idea or the ideal of equality. And he said that's, that's a very... Uh, yeah, he went back to the scriptures on he's that. Absolutely. He? Yeah. he said it's yeah. all right in the Bible. And if I may read one, uh, yes. he points this out in no uncertain terms. These are notes in his hand in his own books. Huh. And one of the books that he read uh, several times was Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, History of the French Revolution. Rousseau writes in one of his books, there is no doubt that people are in the long run what government makes them. And Adams writes, in answer to Rousseau, the government ought to be what people make it, he wrote in response. <laughs> then with Mary Wollstonecraft in the French Revolution, and he, and he loved reading it because he so disagreed with her on nearly everything he said, to her claim that the government must be simple, for example, he answered, the clock would be simple if you destroyed all the wheels, but, but it would not tell the time of day. And then on a blank page beside the contents, he wrote this. Again, this is in reference to the French Revolution. If the empire of superstition and hypocrisy should be overthrown, happy indeed will it be for the world. But if all religion and all morality should be overthrown with it, what advantage will be gained? Mm -hmm. The doctrine of human equality is founded entirely in the Christian doctrine that we are all the children of the same Father, all accountable to him for our conduct to one another. That is remarkable. It also points out to me the principles of the man who was a revolutionary in the sense that he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence for this country and yet did not support the French Revolution. So he was not just for revolution. He was for principle. Well, he was for a revolution that was aimed toward a structured form of government that had balance and would not tear itself apart. Hence principle, right? Hence, well, that's exactly right. And uh, he felt that the majority could be as... Uh, dangerous as overpowering as and exercise its own kind of despotism every bit as much 
as an individual can. Which, you can't give the majority too much power any more than you can give one person too much power. Which is fascinating when you think about how our government is structured then, and he had a lot to yes. do with that, with the, with the, with the houses, House of Representatives and the Senate. Yes. He, he is the one who really espoused most often and, and was set more force than the rest, the idea that we must be a, a government of laws and not of men. Hmm. And he did not believe that all men are created equal in the sense that so many people take it. He mm-hmm. said, look around. It's mm-hmm. common sense. Some people are born with more advantages than others. Some are taller. Some are stronger. Some are much more intelligent. Some are handicapped at birth for, uh, out of no uh, fault of their own. He said, but we must be equal before the law. In the sight of God. And we're all equal in the sight of God. Yes, that was his yes. position, right? Uh, back to Abigail. I was uh, particularly impressed with one where she was talking to her husband about not forgetting the women. Yes. Uh, and giving women a voice. Uh, tell that story briefly here. Well, she, he was there in Philadelphia, and he said, while you're at it, creating this new uh, independent uh, land of freedom, don't forget the ladies. And then she says, remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, your your laughter is right in the right – is exactly in the right spirit. Much of this exchange between them is a bit of, of a banter. Mm-hmm. And that's a line from a poem by Defoe, which – she knew, he knew. So she's throwing quote. a quote at him. Yeah. And he answers that uh, it, it, he has troubles enough of his own, uh, and, and the revolution is going to be difficult enough as it is without uh, the women rising against them too. And goes on to say that, of course, all this idea of men controlling everything is really a fiction. It has to be maintained in order to, in order to continue with society, but th- there was no question who had the real power. One has to think that if she had had a voice, that uh, women would have had the vote right away then. Women would have had the vote, but before that, they would have had equal education. That's mm. what she really right. wanted. Yes. Getting back to this uh, picture of faith and theology, the importance of faith and theology to John Adams, it's very evident. In a day when a lot of people are choosing to ignore that part of the record because it's not compatible with how we are today in our sophistication, I really appreciate the fact that when I read this book, I get that that dynamic. Oh, absolutely. Now, they weren't... John and Abigail Adams were not Puritans. It's a mistake to think of them as Puritans or to, or as so many do to dismiss them as Puritans. I don't know if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis yes, as I am. Very much so. But you may remember in the Screwtape Letters, wonderful book about the, the devil writing to his nephew on, on his education. And he's, there's a line, I can't quote it, but it's something to the effect that um, our side, meaning the devil's side, never had a better break than when they began to diminish and deprecate the word, the name Puritan. Um, <laughs> they were not Puritans in the sense that they were absolutely uh, not against the theater, not against sure. uh, reading novels, right. not against uh, having a few laughs. Right. Uh, uh, so but they did have a deep, enduring faith. Oh, in absolutely. God. There's no, there's no absolutely. question. Absolutely. And he saw no. He saw he Adam saw no incongruity between an abiding faith and a, and an open mind. This conversation with David McCullough is not over. Next week here in First Person, you'll hear part two as we continue to discuss the life and times of John and Abigail Adams. In the meantime, this program is available online at firstpersoninterview.com and also as a podcast using your favorite podcast app. Another way to never miss an interview is to download our free First Person Interview app in your app store for listening on demand. I hope you'll join me in thanking the Far East Broadcasting Company for their support of this program. FEBC broadcasts the gospel in nearly 50 countries, always in the local language, reaching millions with God's Word. 
To learn more and support FEBC, please visit firstpersoninterview.com. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person.